I draw your attention back to the passage we read, Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 16 and following. I wonder if anybody here likes snakes at all. Oh, somebody does. <laughs> I was surprised. Uh, it uh, gets me thinking when I think about snakes of uh, a Planet uh, Earth 2 uh, program that I watched once of racer snakes hunting uh, marine iguanas in the Galapagos Islands. as uh, the first footage seen of snakes hunting in packs, and it showed this marine iguana hatching from its egg, coming up through the sands of the beach where it was born, and instantly these snakes rush after it, and it legs it across the sand, and these snakes grab the iguana, wrap, wrap it in their coils, and you can see one leg and one head sticking out, and then all of a sudden it bursts free and runs away. But snakes are the things of nightmares, aren't they, with their fangs and their poison, uh, I think there was a film called Snakes on a Plane. Uh, that's a horrible thought, isn't it? If they were uh, <laughs> loose on a plane. Um, but I, I don't know if you, as you were reading this passage with me earlier, whether you realized uh, that first and foremost you were reading uh, about snakes. In verse 16 here, we come face to face uh, with a snake. Uh, in the original Greek... In verse 16, uh, who, this girl who had a spirit by which she predict, predicted the future is literally uh, the girl who had a spirit of a python or a python spirit. So this slave girl who intercepts Paul and Silas, who are once again going to the place of prayer in Philippi, uh, where they originally met Lydia, of course. They were met by this girl who had a python spirit. Now, if you know your Greek mythology, uh, you will know that this phrase was a reference to the snake that guarded the temple of Apollo uh, and the Delphic oracle at Mount Parnassus. And it was thought that the god Apollo uh, was embodied uh, in the snake and inspired these pythonesses, which were girls who were able to predict uh, the future. Now, why am I talking so much about snakes this morning? Well, although it isn't expressly said here by Luke, it is evident that this slave girl was possessed uh, with an evil spirit. We often link snakes, don't we, with that great snake, uh, the enemy of God, Satan. It was in the Garden of Eden, of course, that Satan took the form of a snake and tempted Eve. However... This uh, python spirit, this spirit by which he predicted the future, was not a bad thing for the slave girl's owners. The latter half of verse 16 is quite clear, isn't it? She earned a great deal of money for her, her owners by fortune-telling. Evidently, having your fortune told was all the rage in first century Philippi, and her owners were exploiting this trend for all that it was worth. Now then in verse 17, you see her actions there are quite strange, aren't they? To say the least, it says this girl followed Paul and the rest of us. Luke, of course, is the one writing and he's with Paul and Silas, of course. Shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now that's a quite a strange thing to say, but of course 
isn't that just a bit of free publicity uh, for Paul and his companions? Would we have been tempted, had we have been in the same situation as Paul and Silas, to have allowed this slave girl to carry on shouting these things? She mentions, of course, the Most High God. She talks about the way to be saved. Surely she's right. Was it really necessary for Paul then to turn around uh, and command the spirit to come out of her in verse 18? I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke here is using this phrase, a spirit of a python, in verse 16. However profitable her skills were for her owners, her skills came from a very dark place. She had that spirit that came from the great snake of Genesis 3. And that's what Paul saw, and that's why he commanded this spirit to come out of her. But there's more here. We might have perceived this shouting uh, as a kind of bit of uh, free publicity for the cause of the gospel, Paul seeing it very differently. The people of Philippi, they would have been well aware that this girl was practicing some sort of occultish magic. And however true her statement was about the most high God and the way to be saved, the Philippians listening to this would have associated Paul and Silas's gospel message had he allowed this slave girl to carry on with the occult. In other words... Satan was trying through the slave girl uh, to rip the gospel out of its true context and present it to the people of Philippi as just another weird phenomenon, phenomenon uh, circling around the city. It was an attempted spiritual hijack. That's what Paul saw, and that's why he didn't want to let it happen. What am I trying to say here? Well, what I'm trying to say is this. The Bible is very clear that we live in a world where there is a real spiritual battle taking place. It might sound foreign to the modern ear, but when Jesus was on earth, his presence caused heightened demonic and spiritual activity. And if you turn to Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8, you see similar occurrences to what we have seen here in Acts 16. You read Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. Listen to this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the whole armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Now people outside of this church, perhaps who've never been to church, listening to this kind of thing, would snigger and think, what on earth, this is medieval rubbish. Uh, but Christian, the Bible is clear. We do not live in a neutral place. You remember the language of Ephesians 6. We're not skipping through the flower-speckled meadow of life. No, we are struggling. That's the word. We are struggling against the powers of this dark world and against the forces, uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, which is why Paul does not take any prisoners 
in verse 18. After a while, he'd had enough. The cause of the gospel was at stake. The spiritual future of this slave girl was at stake, and so he takes his stand. The problem for us is that the attacks of Satan are not obvious, are they? We have to be on high alert. We have to, as it says in Ephesians 6, not put on some of the armor of God. We have to put on the whole armor of God. There are no half measures. We can be easily fooled. It gets me thinking about a program that my wife was watching a few years ago with Gareth Malone, this guy who goes around and organizes uh, choirs uh, in places of work often. Uh, and then he um, gets them to be prepared for a big uh, sort of uh, singing competition. And he goes to this uh, uh, area of Telford, quite a rough area. Uh, and there was a choir that had been organized by a vicar uh, whom the locals called the Naughty Vicar. Uh, and you see them uh, joking amongst themselves, the choir there with, with Gareth. Uh, and they say this about her. You're not trying to convert us at all, really, are you? I think she's trying to lead us astray. And then Gareth interviews uh, this vicar uh, who says uh, this about herself. From day one, I said, yeah, I'm the vicar. Yeah, it's my church, but actually I'm not there to convert or Bible bash. I'm just here to bring the community together, and that is what we do. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? It sounds really non-threatening. Uh, a vicar going into a troubled area of Telford and giving people perhaps a bit of a purpose in life, a community feel. But what has happened here is that Satan has hijacked the cause of the gospel, blinded the vicar's eyes to uh, what she should really have been doing, and all she can see herself as is a kind of community worker. That's how Satan works you don't believe me read the screw tape letters by c.s lewis you read the bible now that is why the holy spirit comes along and through paul prevents a gospel hijacking here but then satan comes and through the powers that be in philippi he comes down on paul and silas like a ton of bricks doesn't he in verse 19 to 24 if the gospel can't be undermined through the slave girl, then Satan says we'll lock it up and we'll throw away the key. So we've been thinking about snakes. Now I want us to think more about a savior. This brings me to the very well-known bit of this chapter. Don't switch off. This very well-known bit is absolutely mind-blowing. But what you get, first of all, is Paul and Silas get an absolute pasting, don't they? Mob rule takes over. The owners of the slave girl, they quickly realize that their business is going down the chute. They drag Paul and Silas before the couple of magistrates who would have been in the marketplace in Philippi there. However enraged these slave girl owners are, they have the presence of mind to concoct a fairly clever uh, plan. They have this kind of false accusation against these two missionaries. Verse 20, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Cleverly, the owners hide their real reason 
for their complaint, in other words, economic disaster, uh, and they pander to the anti-Semitism that would have been in Philippi in those days. Uh, They talk about these men are Jews, and they also go after the pride of the people of Philippi in their Roman citizenship. Us Romans, they talk about. Now, the problem for Paul and Silas was that their accusations were really serious. It was illegal in those days to cause a riot and to introduce a foreign religion. So with the mob joining in, the inevitable happens. Uh, Verses 22 and 23 of this chapter do not make for nice reading at all. If you know anything about the scourge, the flagellum, uh, the Roman whip that was used uh, to beat and whip Paul and Silas here, you would know that they would have been in a very, very bad way by the time they were locked in the inner cell uh, in Philippi's prison. To say that the punishment meted out to them was uh, harsh would be a gross understatement. It was entirely unnecessary for them to be uh, put in maximum security uh, arrangements there in the middle of the prison with their feet in stocks. After a Roman uh, whipping like that, Uh, they would not have been able to stand, let alone uh, reenact a kind of ancient version of the great escape. What is also shocking is that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, uh, and Roman citizens were completely exempt from this kind of treatment. Now, later on, Paul stands up for his rights, but he doesn't straight away, does he? What does he do? What are they doing in verse 25. I think this is wonderful. It is wonderful. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. One commentator says this, the gospel may be locked up, but it cannot be locked out. Cannot be locked out. You cannot overstate this. The gospel of Jesus Christ really works. It really works. Paul and Silas had been beaten to a pulp and from the depths of a prison cell at the darkest hour of the night, they are praying. They are singing hymns. That's what Jesus can do. That's what Jesus can do. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. That's what salvation can do in a person's life. Paul and Silas, at that darkest hour of the night, could see that Jesus was better than anything else, that he surpasses everything else. Now, I did a quick search on my Bible app for the word surpassing uh, in the Bible. In, In other words, it means far exceeds, loads better than. You listen to these verses, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 10. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Philippians 3 verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. To Paul and Silas, they were able to sing and pray in such a terrible time because they saw that Jesus was better even than life itself. Better than life itself. Psalm 63, verse, six, verse 3, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Now, are we a saved people this morning? Has salvation visited us? Then, is Jesus and his love better than even life itself? Does he surpass everything in our eyes? Let us pray, let us ache for strength to stand in the evil day like Paul and Silas here because we can see we have him and we have a better home. You know the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We have to ask this question. Is there anyone better than Jesus? Is there a better friend? Can you think of a better friend? Is there anybody we can trust more? The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He is mighty to save. Let us hope in him. Let us see life in the light of Jesus. But there's more here. And on this note, I want to close. In the horror and distress of these events, salvation visits a hardened, cruel Philippian jailer. While Paul and Silas are singing and praying, verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Not surprisingly, the jailer wakes up. He sees the carnage before him. He comes to the conclusion that his prisoners must have escaped. And because of the rule that if a jailer or a Roman soldier uh, loses his prisoners, uh, his life was forfeit. This retired Roman soldier was about to end it all, wasn't he? His life was as good as over anyway. Fortunately for him, Paul sees him and he stops him just in time. What is interesting is that this Philippian jailer thought that suicide was the best way of avoiding judgment in this life. Clearly, he didn't think that there was judgment waiting for him on the other side. What does Jesus say about this? Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. One commentator says that at that moment, with sword in hand, about to kill himself, this Philippian jailer was hovering over hell. He was hovering over hell. Now, if you haven't believed that Jesus died 
on a Roman cross to take your sins away, then right now you are hovering over hell. I am not being overly morbid. I am just repeating the teachings of the Son of God. I plead with you, with all that you have, run away from that cliff edge. Do what this Philippian jailer did. Now, what he did next is very well known. Again, do not switch off. Verse 29 and 30. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You've heard it before. Now, that language of being saved was not foreign, was not new to the Philippian jailer. Uh, It would have been used a lot in ancient Philippi in faith systems other than Christianity. So this would not have been a new idea to the Philippian jailer. However, he had suddenly realized that uh, these men who could sing after a flogging, who had potentially caused a supernatural earthquake, and who hadn't run away when given the opportunity to do so, they must have had something that he desperately needed. And they answer his question, don't they? They answer his question. They don't answer his question in a way that many man-made religions the world over would have answered his question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because religions the world over would have answered the Philippian jailer something like this. Now that is a very good question, Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Because it's the doing that is the important part. Jailer, you have to do lots of things in order to be saved. You must do them to the best of your ability in order for you to have some sort of of loose hope of being saved. Salvation comes through good works. That's what religions the world over would say. And that's exactly how mankind likes it. Rules to follow. Things to do because of course God is exactly like us exactly like us sin isn't so serious that a few good works can't just sort of brush them under the carpet God is some kind of benevolent grandfather type figure that sits on a fluffy cloud and welcomes one and all but that's rubbish isn't it it's rubbish it's an obvious question if we can get to heaven through good works, why on earth did Jesus die on a Roman cross? Yes, God is love. We see that in 1 John uh, and chapter uh, 5. Yes, he is loving to all that he has made. Psalm 145. Yes, he has great compassion. You see that in Psalm 51. Yes, he is patient with us all, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and you see that in 2 Peter chapter 3 but my God lives in unapproachable light you see that in 1 Timothy 6 my God is thrice holy before whom angelic beings have to hide their faces and you see that in Isaiah 6 before my God mankind at his very best is like filthy rags you see that in Isaiah 64 my God says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you see that 
in Romans 3. But, but, my God also says that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and this is a wonderful word, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 16. So Paul and Silas tell this Philippian jailer exactly how it is. The answer is question, verse 31. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That is it. The Philippian jailer did not have to do anything in the sense of an act of goodness or kindness. No, he just needed to believe, to say, yes, it is true. Jesus died for me. He took the punishment for my sins on himself when he died on that cross. I believe he did it for me. In believing, you're not doing anything, are you? You're just saying God has done it all in Christ. He's done it all in Jesus. That is it. You trust that. You cling on to that. You believe it. You believe it. And repentance is part of believing, isn't it? Repentance is part of believing. If you believe that Jesus died on that cross for you, you're saying that your sins nailed him to that cross. You're saying that you've broken God's law and in so doing you deserve punishment. But praise God, Jesus took that punishment. It is wonderful, isn't it? He took that punishment. And believing that changes you. It changes you. You hate sin now and you start behaving differently. The jailer started behaving differently, didn't he? He took Paul and Silas, he took them home, he washed their wounds, he gave them a meal, he didn't put them back in the stocks. He was a changed man. The gospel works. It really does. It changes people. Now, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus, if you don't trust in the Lord Jesus, I plead with you to do what the Philippian jailer did. And I'm saying that because you can very easily be like the ruling authorities of Philippi. Did you notice it there? At the end of the chapter, they did not care that Paul and Silas had the message of the meaning of life. They did not care that they had the way of salvation. They just wanted Paul and Silas out of their town. Get out. That's what they said. Push and settling questions of death and eternity away. Ignore it and it'll just disappear. That's how most of the world does it. I know. I know. It's a tragedy. It is an absolute tragedy tragedy. Don't do it. Do not be like these ruling authorities. Now, Christian, before I close, don't leave the Philippian jailer for the non-Christian. Don't think that his story is just a simple gospel message and you can switch off. 
praise God from whom all blessings flow, that you are saved. Praise him from, all, from whom all blessings flow, that you are chosen before the very foundation of the world to believe in the Lord Jesus. Do not gloss over that phrase and you will be saved. You are saved. You are saved from your sins. You are saved forever. Nothing changes it. You are saved into a new life where you now know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And because you're saved, you're a resurrection person. You're a resurrection person. You are going to live forever. Do you ever sit down and think about forever? It is a wonderful thought. But that is not the best part. That does not get close to it. Not at all. You're going to be forever with Jesus. And Jesus surpasses everything.